John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. As Lissy shared, in this series, we are talking about the Christian faith as not less than rational, but definitely more than rational. We're considering the objections to the Christian faith. The objection we'll consider today is that science has disproved the existence of God, which is really not an objection against Christianity so much as it is an objection against theism or against a religion that believes and posits the belief in a, go a God, since this cannot be concluded using scientific methods. I'll admit, during seminary, I had crisis moments in my faith regarding God's existence, many of them. At that time, the YouTube algorithm had learned that I had an interest in the topics of religion and science, and so I was re recommended countless videos featuring celebrity atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and a little, a little closer to home, uh, Tufts professor Daniel Dennett. These two, four people have been called the, the four horsemen of the new atheist movement. Now at the heart of what these men argue is that a rational person, a thinking person, an intelligent person should not believe in God. To be clear, this was miles away from the perspective that I was learning in my clinical counseling classes in seminary, where my professors argued that there's an, a value in seeing science and religion in terms of a single integrative knowledge system. No, their picture of religion and science was not one of two friends sitting in the park having tea and looking at the clouds. Their picture was of two mortal enemies in combat or one of a couple acrimoniously divorced after a gradual and deliberate process of the secularization of science. So Richard Dawkins, he's written this. Gods are fragile things. They may be killed with a whiff of science or a dose of common sense. He's also written this. I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. To be satisfied with not understanding the world. What's being argued here is that religion, a religious belief system, is orga organized around fictitious beliefs that promote 
blind obstinance and complacency. Science, they say, has outgrown God and has a more promising future in its horizon than religion does. There's a value in asking this question, has science disproved the existence of God? Because a lot of people assume it has. The new atheists certainly have an uptick in disciples. But has it? Has science disproved the existence of God? Are the new atheists right? At the same time we're asking this question, we're going to be examining Thomas, the disciple who has gained the reputation as the first Christian skeptic. And we're going to be considering his encounter with the risen Christ. Thomas, we will see, models a life not of complacency, but of curiosity. He also, believe it or not, models a life of faith. In essence, while he is not the perfect role model, scientists and Christians can learn a lesson or two from Thomas. Doubting Thomas is how we know him. Thomas the doubter. But there's more than Thomas to his doubt. Than, than to his doubt, um, than just his doubt, excuse me. We first hear Thomas in John chapter 11. So news reaches Jesus that Lazarus is sick. So Jesus readies the disciples to go down to Bethany. Really? The disciples seem to say this in one voice. Really? Teacher, a short while ago they tried to stone you there. Yet you're going back? Thomas's voice actually stands apart from the rest of them when he says, let us also go, that we may die with him. I don't read this as a Debbie Downer sort of statement. He actually persuades the rest of the disciples. Was Thomas ready to die with Jesus? Was Thomas the doubter ready to follow Jesus to death by stoning? It seems like it from the text. The next time we hear Thomas's voice is in chapter 14. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you, but I will come back and take you to be with me. Jesus says, you know the way to the place I'm going. And Thomas says, wait, 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 hold on. Actually, maybe it's just me. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Thomas is the mouthpiece of the disciples, not content to simply not understand. So often Jesus speaks in riddles and these parables that go miles above the disciples' head, but on this occasion, Thomas wants to know the way so he isn't left befuddled. On these two occasions, we see Thomas as more than a doubter. Thomas is a leader. Thomas is inquisitive. He's courageous. He's prepared to follow Jesus faithfully wherever he goes, even to his own death. He's not just a doubter. Now, the tradition of doubting Thomas finds its origin in the passage we just read. We learn that everyone, all the disciples except Thomas, have seen Jesus after the resurrection. Talk about not fair. Everyone's locked up in a house together, and they're saying, we've seen the Lord. There's immediacy in their language since they're essentially in hiding and they're afraid. Jesus' return changes everything. No doubt Thomas is trying to make sense of what it all means. And see, here we hear uh, Thomas famously say in verse 25, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were 
and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas wants the same experience as the other disciples. He wants to see Jesus. He has the same tenacious drive to know for himself, just like we saw back in chapter 14. There's no contact for seven days, we're told. Seven days after that point. But then Jesus appears. We read in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, and I can't imagine he didn't have his eyebrows raised, Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting or stop disbelieving and believe. On the one hand, it's of little wonder that Thomas has been called the doubter since Jesus tells him to stop doubting. Yes, Jesus says stop doubting and believe, or, or he, the word for believe could be trust or have faith. Jesus says, touch me, I'm not a ghost. Look at my wounds, I'm not a stunt double. I'm the real deal. But on the other hand, I like the title Thomas the Curious or Thomas the Investigative. I like that a little better. While Thomas does express his refusal to believe, he also shows great faith. In fact, when he's shown evidence, Thomas is the one who makes the greatest, most climactic confession of faith in the entire book of John. Thomas said to Jesus in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He brings together two words from the Old Testament, Yahweh and Elohim. In tradition, whenever the word Yahweh was read aloud, the word Adonai was used in its place, which means Lord, my Lord. And the word Elohim means God, my God, my Lord and my God. He takes these two words and he seems to get it. The whole point of John's gospel, it builds up to this moment where he is the mouthpiece for the disciples and he understands. Jesus is the God revealed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The beloved disciple doesn't make this confession. Peter doesn't make it, like he does in the synoptic gospels. The one who gets it is Thomas. Doubting Thomas is actually faithing Thomas. Believing Thomas, investigative Thomas, curious Thomas, has evidence to support his thesis that Jesus is really God. Now Jesus tells Thomas in verse 29, you have believed... What has he believed? He's believed in the truth of the resurrection because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You, Thomas, have faith because I've shown myself to you. Others will have to take your word for it. But blessed are those who do. And that's an important thing to say. Christians have to take a step of faith, a leap of faith. And I think we gravitate towards Thomas because... He can be said to represent all Christians. He was the one who didn't see the resurrection first. While some Christians experience Christ visiting them in a dream or vision, I've heard stories of people in other countries close to the gospel or uh, people coming out of religions that strongly oppose Christianity. Most Christians have to make a leap of faith, trusting in the testimonies of others. The New Testament scriptures are the witness of other people who sat with Jesus. They first heard Jesus and sat at his feet. They heard his claims. They saw him rise from death. 
defying the claims of science. Everything comes back to the record of eyewitness accounts of God's revelation. Yes, there's tradition. Yes, there's reason and personal experience, but they're built on the bedrock of a record of eyewitness accounts of God revealing himself. God's special revelation is not equally experienced by everyone in all times. There are special times when God's veil of concealing mystery is especially thin. And that's what, when, what the Gospels are written for. They gather together the witness of early believers who believed because they'd seen with their own eyes God become flesh, God crucified, and God risen. That's why the Gospels were written. And we get that actually just in the verses right after our passage. So in verses 30 and on, um, chapter 20 concludes this way. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John so eloquently says the signs Jesus, Jesus performed, the miracles, the evidences that Jesus is who he said he is, have been curated and trimmed down to just seven in this book. Seven miracles that cannot be explained away by the science of our day or yours whenever you're going to read this. And they stand as our witness to those still waiting for Jesus' return. John's gospel exists so that those with ears to hear will make the leap of faith. So that you may believe in Jesus, the Son, or the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe. It's the way to life in Christ. It's the only way. Believe. John's gospel wants you to make the same Easter profession that Thomas made, where we know that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And just to be clear, those that doubt and ultimately don't believe have to make a leap too. Disbelieve, disbelief, like faith, is a leap. When someone tells you a story, we filter it through our own experience, our rationality, our knowledge, the details of our relationship with that person. The reasonableness of their story is weighed, and we tend to conclude fairly quickly whether we trust them or we have our reservations. But it's impossible to stay completely neutral. If you are on a basketball court, imagine yourself right at half court, and one hoop is belief, and the other hoop is disbelief. You're going to at least be drifting towards one side or another when you start to hear a story. And you don't even have to tell the other person you're thinking it. The, the nonverbal cues of suspicion or trust are all over your face, and they'll, they'll change the way they're telling the story. They'll say, no, 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 believe me, the fish really was that big. Or they'll say, okay, okay, I'm not 100% sure it was Michelle Obama, but it looked like her. It could have been her twin. We don't have to have a crisis moment. And we don't even have to make a commitment, but we can't stay completely neutral when it comes to the witness of Scripture. We drift one way or the other. Now, the question that we're confronted with is this. Who can believe this witness? Who can accept this testimony as valid, especially in light of modern science? Doesn't science invalidate these claims? What do we even do with miracles and resurrection. Now, this is a stumbling block for a lot of people, especially this side of the Enlightenment. And we don't just believe in miracles. Miracles are of central importance to our faith. And we don't just believe them, we celebrate them. 
we celebrate Christmas, which is Jesus' incarnation into the world. It's nothing less than a miracle that cannot be explained in any other way. Easter celebrates what we're talking about, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, from death back to life. It can't be explained by science. During the Enlightenment, a mistrust of the Bible developed because the, the Bible contained miracles, things that didn't happen in the experience of scholars. A modern view of the world precluded the miraculous. Anything outside of the realm of what could be said to be natural. And so it supposedly invalidates, I would say, anything of significance in Scripture. Anything that can be rightly called special revelation. During the period of the Enlightenment, the philosophy of naturalism came to the fore. At its root, naturalism, or, or I'd rather use the word materialism, Materialism is the belief that matter is all that exists. It's all that there is. It's a philosophical position about the nature of reality that I think is especially fit for the scientific enterprise, for the methods of science, which is all about testing matter through a process to determine what things are and how they work. But it doesn't mean there isn't a God beyond the horizons of science. Tim Keller's written on this very subject, and I think he, he, is the he has the crux of this argument in this statement. He says, the one thing that, si uh, the one thing, excuse me, it's one thing to say that science is equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It's quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. The scientific method produces a valid way of knowing some things, things that have natural causes, but it cannot rule out other causes, supernatural causes. It can theorize how the world might have started, but it can't say that God didn't start it. Science can theorize how so-called natural processes work, but it can't work, rule out that God works synergistically, that is, in synergy or in cooperative action, sustaining creation and bringing things towards his desired ends. And it's actually a circular argument to say that because science can only test for certain things, that only certain things exist. The existence of God is an article of faith that can't be proven, but also can't be disproved by science, now or ever. One person said it this way, scientists don't try to prove or disprove God's existence because they know there isn't an experiment that can ever detect God. And if you believe in God, it doesn't matter what scientists discover about the universe, any cosmos can be thought of as being consistent with God. And I think the same can be applied to miracles and the resurrection. According to the Christian faith, God's action, it burns intensely in every moment of the world's existence, but always just around the corner of our perception. If God created everything, then of course God can speed up time to bring about a natural healing faster than thought possible through a natural process. God can rearrange any part of creation in any way he likes. God is the one who breathed life at the beginning. So yes, Richard Dawkins and others take issue with the affirmation of God's existence, which is taken on faith, but equally Many scientists take issue with the strong position of the new atheists that deny God's existence 
which is based on another kind of faith. I mean, even a lot of atheists take issue with the, the new atheists because both belief and unbelief require a leap of faith. And science and faith aren't necessarily in conflict. One thinker, uh, other thinkers, excuse me, they, they believe that the domains of religion and science act in independence of one another. They're like, and this is a term, two non-overlapping magisteria. So the belief that religion and science represent different areas of inquiry and they have their own legitimate methods and their own right to ask their own questions. Other, other people place religion and science in dialogue with one another, finding that problems are best addressed in an interdisciplinary way because science doesn't naturally take an interest in squishy things like love or in ideals like human dignity. So this, this approach preserves each field's unique mode of inquiry and interests. Others take another approach of integration, so systematically weaving science and religious knowledge together into a unified knowledge system. A complementary model looks to God as the author of two books, the Bible, special revelation which reveals God, and nature, general revelation, from which we get science. The Bible reveals God's purposes for the world, as opposed to providing scientific information about the natural world. Might do some of that, but it's more incidentally. And therefore, because it reveals God's purposes for the world, it has its primary authority in the life of the Christian. Science, on the other hand, helps us to live responsibly in this world and take, live into our vocations as carers of the world, carers of creation. They're both part of God's world, science and religion. In short, I think that we can disabuse ourselves of the, the notion that we have to choose between being a science person and being a religious person. I think that's absolute garbage. So... Let's consider Thomas again, who was called to faith, but wanted to see the risen Christ with his own eyes. He wanted proof, which admittedly he was given, but Christ tells us that those without proof who believe are the ones who are truly blessed. Thomas models a life not of complacency, but of curiosity. He also models a life of faith. And I think, though he's not perfect, both scientists and Christians can learn some lessons from Thomas. I wonder if, if Jesus had never appeared to Thomas, it is technically possible that he might have remained skeptical and agnostic on the matter of the resurrection. In fact, we're told just prior to the Great Commission in Matthew that the 11 disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted, it says, some doubted. Um, I'm not sure where I would have been without those moments in seminary questioning my faith. Um, I think actually that doubt spurred me on to ask questions that I wouldn't have asked otherwise that led me into deeper faith. Doubt is not uh, in opposition to the Christian life. It's part of all of our journeys. But what I want to say about holding an agnostic position, according to this passage... All that it does is it, it tells us that we're going to miss a blessing. 
rejecting a life of faith keeps us from the possibility of knowing God. God isn't a test we can run. It's, he's not a series of feedback loops that we can measure. The way God makes himself known is through faith. The way that we experience God's presence is by searching for him, for, by knocking on the door, entering, approaching, asking questions. We experience God's presence through faith and by faith alone. Through faith, we can know God. And as John's gospel tells us, through faith, we have eternal life in his name, a good life, a long life. Knowing God leads us into the lives that we were designed to live, where we can enjoy God through worship and believe in God's story in the Bible, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is our surest hope because it reveals the character of God who gives Christ the first fruits of what's to come. Wrapped up in our faith is the belief that God has acted and will act in ways that restore and heal creation. So science is not the only story with a promising future in its horizon. Our faith promises a good future. So, on the question of faith and religion, I say let's be like Thomas. Let's be inquisitive and curious, but let's also be like Thomas. Let's have faith. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you call us into a life of faith where you meet us. We thank you for the, the cross and the resurrection and the promise of new life in you, of eternal life, of, of life everlasting in you. We pray that you would encourage us in our faith today. Um, and I pray that we would rest in you if there are those among us that are struggling with, with disbelief, I pray that you would push us in the direction of faith and push us in the direction of curious conversations. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.